Our scripture reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we will read the first 15 verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, as we reflect 2023 and begin to embark on 2024, may our confession be that Jesus doeth all things well. And may we trust in your sovereign hand as we look ahead. May we rest in your grace in the surety of what you do, your work, that it is sure and steadfast and solid and that you are working out all things to conform your people to the image of Christ. And may we, even as we think of this text this morning, consider how you have formed us this past year in small and subtle ways and maybe in large ways to be more like Jesus. And so I pray that you would help us this morning. Give us wisdom, help me, keep me from error. We love you and we ask for your favor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. May I wish you a happy new year. Here we are, December 31st. In a few short hours, 2023 will be no more, and 2024, the year of our Lord, will be upon us. 
And I think it's good to remind ourselves even of that this morning, that 2024 will be the year of our Lord, just as 2023 was the year of our Lord and every year prior to that. We serve a sovereign God, and He continues to work out all things according to the counsel of His will, moving time and history forward to the summing up of all things in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians. And so as we stand on the precipice of 2024 and as we look back on 2023 and we take stock, there's much to be thankful for. There are events and circumstances that we lament. So what perspective will we have as we consider all that has taken place, all that God has done in this last year? What perspective do we need when we look ahead? Well, we need wisdom to see God's work in our lives. And I think this passage before us in Ecclesiastes helps us to gain a wise perspective on life. And if I could just summarize it at the very beginning and say it this way, in our days that are often perplexing and troubled, God is at work providing ordinary blessings for our joy and assuring us that He makes all things beautiful in time. The theme is the providence of God this morning. And it's just in two parts. Our text is, can be broken down into two sections. With a little preamble in verse 1, we'll start in section 1, starting in verses 2 through 8. The providence of God in our days. And it's this poetic survey of the totality of life. And then in verses 9 through 15, we will see all things beautiful in light of God's providence. And I use this word providence. What does that mean when you think of this word? I think it's good at the outset to define our terms, understanding what providence is. Consider the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563. There's a question that says this, what do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come not by chance but by His fatherly hand. Providence is, as John Piper says in his book with the same title, Providence, it's God's sovereignty matched with God's purpose. All things in the universe are under the control of Almighty God. Nothing escapes His government. Nothing is by chance in this world. Note the last phrase of that answer from the catechism. All things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. You and I as Christians must believe God as our heavenly Father, that He is kind and loving and gracious and generous to His own. To the point that where you and I can declare with the psalmist, the Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind 
in all his works. Kind in all his works. Ecclesiastes is ancient Hebrew wisdom literature, and I think it's appropriate for 2024 to look back at ancient Hebrew wisdom literature. Perhaps you're familiar a bit with Ecclesiastes, the book that speaks of the vanity of life, the seemingly meaninglessness of life. I believe that Solomon is the author of this book. You see that in chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And much of Ecclesiastes would bear out many of the facts of King Solomon's life. And so Solomon is bringing wisdom to bear And in chapter 1, Solomon observes life, and he begins with this well-known phrase, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. That word vanity is best translated as vapor or mist or breath, as figurative for the fleeting temporariness of life, the futility of life. In chapter 2, Solomon responds to this observation by testing his heart. And he says, I'm going to test my heart with all manner of pleasure, all manner of wealth. I'm going to test my heart with work. I'm going to test my heart by pursuing wisdom. And his conclusion in all of this is all of it was like a chasing after the wind. That there was no permanent pleasure in life under son. But there's this small glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you're, you're there in chapter 3, but look back at 2.24. This seemingly vanity, this, this uh, futility of life. But notice what he says in 2.24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given to the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. There is nothing better. I want you to remember that phrase, there is nothing better And I saw that this is from the hand of God. So we begin in chapter 3, verse 1, a preamble. There is a time for everything. Verse 1, there is a time for everything. There is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Solomon sets the stage. He sets the content of the next several verses with this first verse. And we see that the focus of this whole pericope, this section of text, is time. And you see this first verse, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter. If you look closely, those verses are in parallel, and the middle terms, if you look, is season and time. It's almost as a a cross pattern. It's a Hebrew chiastic uh, phrase, structure, and it basically makes an X. But the middle terms are season and time. And that's the focus of this passage. They're distinct. We, we think of seasons. We think of time. When you think of season, what do you think of? Summer, winter, uh, spring, fall. You might think of rainy seasons, harvest season, planting season. 
Perhaps there are other seasons. We've come through a holiday season, monsoon seasons. We think of long periods of time. And then when you come to the word time, you think maybe more of a period of time, a specific date on the calendar, a point on the clock, an appointment. And this word is used throughout the Old Testament in varying degrees of seasons and time. Psalm 9, 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, and He is a stronghold in times of trouble. You have this, fra- this extended period of time, or in Deuteronomy, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart, with all your soul, He will give you rain for your land in its season. Early rain, later rain, that you may gather your grain and your wine and your oil. And so we think of times and seasons, but look at the last uh, several, uh, at the end of verse 1, you have this other word, every matter. There's a time for every matter. Most of the occurrences of this word, matter, speak of desire or delight or purpose. It's really getting to the affairs of mankind. And so there are seasons and there are times for our affairs, for those things that we purpose and plan for our activities. And so we have set the stage. We have seasons that are often not in our control, and we have times and activities that we plan and we purpose. We set goals. Some of you are setting goals for the new year. We set goals, and sometimes we believe that these are in our control. Matters of life, the delights that we pursue, times and seasons. So that has set the stage for now the first major section of this text, verses 2 through 8. The providence of God in our days, this poetic view of the totality of life. As you think back and as we have read this, given the facts of time, Solomon is now going to survey life. And we begin to see this mysterious interaction between human activity on the one hand and the hand of providence on the other. For instance, verse 2 is a prime example. There's a time to be born and a time to die. We control neither the day of our birth nor the day of our death, and yet here we are. Being born at a time and a place, we don't know the day of our death. We do know it is in the future, but your birth was not a haphazard event. Your birth was, was an appointment. It was an appointed time, a suitable time for you to enter the world, and it was due to the hand of God. In verses 2 through 8, Solomon is describing these activities that capture human experience and human activity. Verse 1 says, under heaven. This is a repeated phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, under heaven or under the sun. All of these things that happen, it's the stuff of life that happens in our days and in our seasons. There's some important features that I want you to see in these verses. First of all, it's poetry, verses 2 through 8. You can see that as it is written. But there are these couplets There are couplets in each of these verses, two couplets each in eight verses for a total of 14 couplets, and they use this uh, word, they're infinitives, we don't usually talk about grammar too much, but they're the words that have the word to in front of them. So for instance, verse 4, to weep, 
to laugh, to mourn, to dance. Sometimes you can think of infinitives as continuous, and you add the ing to that. So weeping, mourning, dancing, this continuous activity. But there is also this time structure. Solomon is focused on the times of these activities, and so he creates this repetitive refrain. Notice, a time and a time, a time and a time, a time and a time. And what you begin to see is that the structure of the poetry helps to tell the story. Activities come and activities go. Seasons come and seasons go, and they come back around again. There is this repetitive nature <coughs> excuse me, to life. And aside from verse 2, <coughs> excuse me, most of these you have actually experienced. We have, we have all been born, and then the rest of these, either you have experienced them or you will someday. There is this repetitive nature. Time comes, time goes. But then I want you to see one more thing in this is this figure of speech. And, the, and Solomon uses a figure of speech called merism. And what that is simply is a device where the writer uses polar opposites to include everything in between. And so, for instance, uh, if, if you've been around my house, my wife would tell you that I ask, I'm constantly asking, where are my keys? I can't find my keys. Where's my phone? And so I could say something like, I have searched high and low for my keys, and I have not found them. Well, what am I saying when I say that? I'm saying I've searched everywhere, high and low. I've encompassed everything with these polar opposites. And you see that weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, killing, healing, breaking down, building up. So he's using polar opposites to describe everything that's going on in between. And so we have this poetic list of life. I, I suggest that it serves this, a dual function as you read this and you observe what's going on. We can identify with many of these activities. We can look at these events. We can pick them apart. We can decide, how has this happened in my life? Yes, I can see how this has gone. In other words, we want to immediately apply the text. And I think that's good initially as we look back at 2023. And we want to see, well, what has God done? And how, has this apply, how does this apply to my life? And so as you observe in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die, how many young little ones have we welcomed in? Babies have we welcomed in to our midst this year? And how many more mothers are pregnant and will be welcoming in more this coming year? And how many have we lamented in the loss of life this year. We have lost loved ones. In verse 3, some of you may have some ideas of some remodeling projects, but first you must do some demolition work before that. There's a time to break down and there's a time to build up. In verse 6, no doubt some of you have an idea to purge your closets and your basements and your garages. Verse 6, a time to keep and a time to cast away. And you begin to see how maybe some of these might apply. But you also notice there's these vague generalities. In verse 5, for instance, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Well, that might mean a number of things. Is this a friend? 
Is this the embrace of a friend? Is it the embrace of a spouse? Or is it something more? Scholars say that this might be something more intimate in nature. Is it, a, is it a time to refrain from embracing because that friend has moved away? Because of a difficult conflict and the friendship has ended? Or even more heartbreaking because a spouse has died? There's really no way to take every one of these verses and try to apply them all in very minute detail, and I think that's the point. I think we can kind of generally look at these, but I think the bigger point of this section and the second function, I think the more likely function is this, that the poetic repetition, the merism, the time structure, the syntax, all of that, Solomon is saying this, this is the totality of life. From beginning to end and all that is in between, and this is the message that he's conveying. That life is made up of living and dying, of planting and harvesting, of killing and healing, building, demolishing, weeping, laughing, keeping, purging, mourning, and dancing. Some of those that you see, in, if you look back at verse 1, every matter, there's familiarity, there's, there's events. The New American Standard says every event known to man, or the New English Translation says every activity We plan and we set goals. We do things on purpose and with purpose. And yet there is this mystery of how our times unfold in our lives. Friends that you thought you would have for a lifetime move away. Or what you took a lifetime to build is now taken down either by your own hand or by the hand of providence. No one could have predicted all that happened to you personally and to us corporately as a church in 2023, the thing you never thought you would do in a million years, you end up doing. This mystery of how time unfolds. But this is the totality of life, and there is a mystery to it. Which leads us to this this second section in verses 9 through 15. All things are beautiful in the light of God's purpose. Look again at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Notice that it goes from poetry now to prose, and Solomon is going to take his poetic survey of life, and he's going to begin to interpret all that he had said before now in verses 9 through 15. What Gain has the worker from his toil. I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. Solomon, in a moment of reflection, is asking, is there any advantage to life? It seems like he's importing maybe a new idea. Why is he all of a sudden talking about work? What does the worker gain in his toil? And the word that is used there, work, toil, making, accomplishing, that word is used 43 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a significant word, asa, work. It's used six times in this passage that we have before us. But what does the worker gain? He's saying if if life is made of doing and undoing, of filling and emptying, for every birth there is a death, for every planting there is a harvesting, for every building there's a breaking down, what's the advantage? It's like one step forward, one step back. I haven't gained anything. For some of us, it's one step forward and two steps back. What's the advantage? If what I do today is going to be undone tomorrow, why bother? 
And so when you have changed the 10th diaper and you're going on number 11, and when you've cleaned the 100th dirty dish of the day only to clean it again tomorrow, or the mundane email that you send every week that you're just going to send again next week, or the new diagnosis which is causing you to make weekly trips to the doctor that are hard on your soul. What's the advantage? But watch what happens next in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. This verse is probably one of the most well-known or often quoted verses in all of Ecclesiastes. The everything in verse 11, catch this, is a reference back to the everything in verse 1. It's a reminder and Solomon is saying that every, everything you see in verses 2 through 8, the everything of 2 through 8, even that, God makes all of that beautiful in its time. Notice what Solomon is doing in verse 11 and what he's describing about God. Verse 11 begins and ends with God's activity. He has made, at the beginning of verse 11, at the end of verse 11, God has done. You see that? He has made, God has done. It's the same word, that word work that I said earlier. And there's a strong time element, three different kinds of time. Beautiful in its time, notice, eternity in man's heart, and at the end, beginning to end. So there's this strong element of God's work in time. What God has made, what God has done from beginning to end. The clear emphasis is God's activity in time, that He controls time, that He wields time. This is not to deny human agency. We know that from verses 2 through 8. We make plans. We make decisions. But the emphasis shifts. What does the worker gain from his toil? Verse 9, human activity. And the emphasis now shifts to God's activity. The God who works, the God who does, and this is where the beauty comes in. Beauty must be seen in light of the fact that God is at work from beginning to end. And the key is how do we think through this word beauty? I have this vague memory from childhood of a picture that hung on our wall. It was this it was a still life. It was either a bowl of fruit or of flowers, or maybe it was both. It was a very serene, idyllic, peaceful picture. It was, it was nice. And, it, and the caption was this very verse. It was verse 11. It said, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And I thought, well, that's, that's nice. That makes sense, of course. God is God. He can do whatever he wants. And as a young boy, I think that's nice. And then you live... 30 or 40 or 50 more years and life happens and you begin to wonder, does God really make everything beautiful in its time? Do we call hardships and bitter providences and losses in life or health or finances beautiful? Is, is Solomon asking us to do what's really hard and to say, 
that bad things that happen to us are beautiful? Is, is that what he's doing? How, how are we to reconcile our experiences in this life with the truth of this verse? Well, I think the answer is partly in the verse itself. He has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. This word eternity is translated in various ways, ignorance or, or darkness or future. New English translation says God has placed ignorance in the human heart. I think what, what, what this verse is trying to get at is that as image bearers, of the one true God. As image bearers, we yearn for significance and meaning. We want to see beauty in our times. We want to look back on 2023 and see beauty. We want want to look ahead to 2024 and hope for beauty. And the reality is that you and I can't always see the beauty. Especially in the mourning and the weeping and the pain and the hurt. The bewilderment of life, the disappointments and the frustrations. Life is inscrutable. We only see the parts for the whole. And sometimes the parts don't feel very beautiful. And it's just as Solomon says, we cannot find out what God has done. What are you up to, Lord? How many of you asked that question? What are you up to? May we in humility say that Jesus doeth all things well. Commentator says this, the trouble for us is not that life refuses to keep still, but that we see only a fraction of its movement and of its subtle, intricate design. Instead of changelessness, we want everything to be the same, don't we? Instead of changelessness, there is something better. There is this dynamic divine purpose with its beginning and end. Instead of frozen perfection, there is this kaleidoscopic movement of innumerable processes, each with its own character and its period of blossoming and ripening, beautiful in its time and contributing to the overall masterpiece, which is the work of of one creator. There is this kaleidoscope. And we consider beauty. I find it interesting that this word beauty, almost every time it's used in the Hebrew Old Testament, is used for physical appearance. Almost every time. The beauty of Sarah, the beauty of Rachel, the beauty of Abigail and Esther and Tamar and Job's daughters and all throughout the Song of Solomon. It's the beauty Or the handsomeness is actually used for the appearance of Joseph, of David, of Absalom. It's even the beauty and the grandeur of Mount Zion itself. And is that what this verse is saying? That all of life is beautiful? It's all roses and lollipops and pretty? That's not what this is saying. It's not about physical appearance. And it's not, and this is where we stumble, it's not really speaking about moral goodness. Rather, the word must be understood in the context, and here is the con in this context, beauty must be understood in this way, fitness or appropriateness. 
suitableness for your time. In fact, the New American Standard says that, appropriate. He makes all things appropriate in their time. And New English translation says, fit beautifully. There is a fittedness. There is a suitableness to what God is doing. As one author says, the preacher here, Solomon, is not pronouncing judgment on the moral qualities of the actions he enumerates. But listen, he's calling attention to the fitness of the times and seasons to which they have been assigned by God. Fitness assigned by God. So to summarize, God is at work. This is verse 11. And though we may not understand it all, all that he is doing, the fact that he is doing it, makes meaning and beauty of our life and our experiences. Or if I could say it another way, the only way that you and I can truly see life as beautiful is that we see our life as God's work. God's work. That what he is doing to us and in us is appropriate for our times. And so beauty then is defined by God, who God is and what God does in this context. And as a good heavenly father, God works to bring out beauty in your life, suitable circumstances and events that in his infinite wisdom are appropriate for you. Is this not Romans 8? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. This is what God is up to. What are you up to, Lord? He's conforming his people to the image of Christ. We can say that without a doubt. We can say that with surety. And so we must trust in His kind and good and loving hand and remind ourselves of His character. That along the way, even here in these next couple of verses, Solomon's going to show us that even along the way in the perplexities of life, the troublesomeness of life, that God is generous and kind and he gives gifts. Look, look at verse 12. I perceive then that there is nothing better. There's that, I told you to remember this phrase. There is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Psalm is saying in the middle of it all, in the totality of life, God gives us gifts to enjoy. And the psalm is saying there's nothing better. We're to be joyful and rejoice. We are to do good. Do you see this? To be joyful and to do good. As long as we live, there's a hint there. As long as we live, there's a hint that life is short. It's temporary. It's fleeting. And so while we have life, we should rejoice and we should do good. Asa, work. That's the same word. It keeps coming back. God's work, our work. Asa tov, 
do good. And then, verse 13, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. We're to eat and drink and take pleasure, find enjoyment. It's actually to see good. That's, that's the literal, to do good and to see good. In the spaces between verses 2 through 8, God has given you simple, ordinary gifts of food and drink and, yes, work. These are God's gifts in the midst of our years. And even more, the ability to enjoy the ordinary, simple things of life is actually a kindness from God's hand. Do you see that? Look back at chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I saw is from the hand of God. Who can have enjoyment apart from him? Chapter 2, verse 25, it's a rhetorical question. No one. Apart from God, no one can have true enjoyment. The one who pleases him. The one who is good before God, that's verse 26, he favors and he gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. Joy is a gift. We heard about joy last week. Simple gifts, the ability to enjoy these gifts are his fatherly kindness to you. In the midst of this broken world that's filled with bitter disappointments and loss. And Solomon is not spouting this pessimistic or nihilistic mantra of let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not what he's saying. He's saying let us eat and drink and work because these are God's gifts to man. And if you find pleasure in these things, that too is a gift from God. In our days that are perplexed and often troubled, God is at work providing ordinary blessings for our joy and assuring us that he is making all things beautiful in time. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever and nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. Notice again the emphasis on God's work two times, whatever God does and God has done it. Again, God's work, God's purposes will stand. What he sets out to accomplish, he will accomplish. And it's shown in stark contrast to our work. Our work is temporary. His work is permanent. But look what, how we should respond to this, the end of verse 14, so that people fear before him. Our inability to ensure that our goals or our achievements or our work is not guaranteed, but God's work is guaranteed. His work is solid. And this should evoke awe and reverence and worship and humility. He is God and we are not. And we rest in the sovereign work of God in our lives. Because why? Verse 11, he's making everything beautiful, to fit appropriately, beautiful in its time, suitable to you. Verse 15 is admittedly difficult to translate. That which is already has been. There's nothing new under the sun. That is actually a phrase from Ecclesiastes. 
that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. I think the best way through this verse is to see it in light of human activity and God's activity. In other words, in the, the, ebb, and the, in the ebb and flow of human activity of all of verses 2 through 8, the coming and the going, the things that we have lost, the hopes and the dreams, the things in the future that we know nothing about, all of this God is watching over. He seeks after what has been driven away. Nothing escapes His hand. Ecclesiastes talks a lot about the elusiveness of life. It's like the chasing after of the wind. It's not true for God. Nothing escapes God's grasp. Nothing escapes His hand. Nothing is out of His reach. And some commentators even understand this to say that God will recall the past and bring it to account in the future. And so, as we conclude, what encouragement can we take from this on the eve of 2024? Very simply, God is at work in your life. Remember the definition of providence, God's sovereignty matched with God's purpose. Paul says in Philippians that God is working in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. His good pleasure. And you can be assured of this, that everything that He is doing and working in your life personally and in our life corporately in the church is to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. We don't know the future. Who knows what's going to happen in 2024? But we do know that the kind hand of providence has been with you all through 2023. And it will be with you in 2024. The Gentiles worry about the future. The pagans. Do not be anxious about 2024. God's people rest in the fact that your heavenly Father knows what you need. Fear Him. Seek Him. Follow Him. Ask for eyes to see the good. We're to do good and see good. Oh, Father, help me to see the good in what you are doing. God is at work in your life. Second, fix your eyes on Christ in 2024. In the coming year, fix your eyes on Christ. In the season that we're in right now, in this season as we reflect on the incarnation that Jesus became fully man, as fully God. He entered into time and space to experience times and seasons. Jesus Christ entered into time and space, and He experienced His own times and seasons. And does He not, therefore, understand life under the sun? Does He not, therefore, understand the life that you experience? I love how the author of Hebrews says, surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's that's you and me. 
humanity, men and women. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Christ partook of flesh and blood, lived among us and experienced pain and hurt and frustration and suffering. And so I want you just for a moment to reflect on the times that Christ experienced. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe the gospel. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Times. At one point, his hour had not yet come. We saw this in John chapter 7 when they tried to arrest Jesus. His hour had not yet come. And then in the garden, the hour had come. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. On the third hour, they crucified him. And on the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was... He died and he was buried. But on the third day, on the third day, he was raised to new life. And he was among his brothers for 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven and now is seated at the right hand of the Almighty where he makes intercession for you for his people. These are the times that Christ entered into on your behalf. And are all, all these times appropriately beautiful? Uh, has not the Father orchestrated all of these things in his son's life? Can you trust your heavenly Father to orchestrate things in your life? Yes, yes, and amen. Brothers and sisters, look once again to your Savior who entered time and space on your behalf, who submitted his will to the kind hand of his Father. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Therefore, you too, who experience joy and suffering, you too should entrust your souls to your faithful creator while doing good. And if you do not know Christ, I can't think of a better way to start 2024 than to trust Christ. Just a bit further in Ecclesiastes, we didn't read this. Solomon says, I said in my heart, 
God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. And judgment is coming. And we all have a day on the calendar that we don't know, but God knows our final day. Judgment is coming for everyone in this room. There is a time to be born, and there is a time to die. And the book of Hebrews tells us that it is appointed for man to die once and then to face the judgment. And you, if you do not know Christ, you do not want to die while you are still in your sins. So may I plead with you this morning, if you do not know Christ, will you put your faith in the good news is that Christ Jesus was offered once to bear the sins of many. Today is the day of salvation. Be reconciled to God through Christ. Look to Him. And to my brothers and sisters this morning, we'll close. God will make all things beautiful in time. We may not see how it all fits together this side of heaven, but we can be assured that his kind hand of providence will be suited for you as he conforms you more and more to the image of Christ. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, may that be our heart's desire. That all we would want in 2024 would be to conform to Christ, to be more like Jesus. And you are working in your sure way and your kindness as a heavenly Father. You're working to do that. And may we trust that. Oh, Father, may we trust that, that you're kind to your people. We don't see the beauty, all of it, but we know that you are working. And so I pray that we would take comfort in that. We would fix our eyes on Christ. You call sinners to repentance this morning, looking unto Christ to save them. Father, pray for this church, 2024. Would you go before us? Would you continue to build your church? Would you continue to protect your church? Protect us from evil? Father, would we be more conformed as a church to the image of Christ? And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand, let's close by singing Abide.